Sometimes a political candidate or even somebody who's in office has to be funny on purpose. Now, how do you get a laugh and not get laughed at? That's the topic I want to explore today and got the perfect person with whom to do it. And that's the executive producer and creator of the classic sitcom, Everybody Loves Raymond. And that's my friend, Phil Rosenthal. But we're also going to learn two bonus lessons today. The first one, how do you correct the president of the United States to his face in the Oval Office and not get wrestled to the ground by the Secret Service? And number two, how did presidents like FDR and Barack Obama handle hecklers? And today's episode, heck, all of our episodes are being brought to you by FedEx. They're affordable and they're fast. I'm Michael Sheehan, and this is Politics as Unusual. It has been said that dying is easy, but comedy is hard. Now, that quote's been attributed to a whole lot of people, but did a little research and found that it was actually Shakespearean actor Edmund Keene back in 1833 on his deathbed. We take off from there. I get asked this question all the time by people who are running for office or people who are in office. Michael, you think I should start with a joke? Wouldn't that be a great way to sort of warm up the audience? Well, let me tell you how dangerous that can be. Jokes can be like a souffle. It just takes a noise. It just takes one little piece of the wrong ingredient, and you've got a problem. Now, I don't want you to go out there unprotected. I want you to have some information. So, you know, the pros take years to learn how to tell a joke, how to write a joke. I'm going to try to deliver you that insight today. Can you be taught to tell a joke? Can you learn how to be funny? There is no better person I can ask to join me today on Politics is Unusual as my friend Phil Rosenthal. Now, you all know Phil. He is the creator, executive producer, and wrote many of the segments for the legendary Everybody Loves Raymond. One of my favorites, his PBS series, I'll Have What Phil's Having, and of course, his current series on Netflix, Feed Phil Now. But I must confess... Somebody feed Phil. Oh, somebody... What did I say? Feed Phil Now. Oh. You're like my parents. They got it wrong, too. But you learned how to be funny from your father. He tells one of the best jokes I've ever heard, which I have stolen on at least 16 occasions about being happily married. Oh, yeah. He says we've been happily married for 15 years. Out of 63, that's not bad. (laughs) He also says this. I haven't spoken to your mother in 35 years. I don't want to interrupt. (laughs) Now, how can you teach someone how to do something like that? The timing, the inflection, where does it come from? That you're born with. You're born with an innate sense of rhythm and timing, and if you're in a family where that is the currency around the dinner table, it's in you. You naturally pick it up. We all have our parents' mannerisms and affectations. That's one. Two is you immerse yourself in that world. So for me, not only did I have the funny guy at home as a role model, but I was watching television uh, to a fault because I found that was much safer than going outside. You were chained to the TV set. Absolutely. Like the way kids are with the phone today, I would literally be that. Now, when you were a child, you and I actually grew up the same place. We grew up in Queens. Now, there has been a legendary debate. Which is funnier, Queens, Brooklyn, or Manhattan? That's a great question. I don't know. I'm going to say Queens because we're from Queens. I know, but there's a problem. So is Donald Trump. Hilarious. (laughs) But on Isn't it funny what's happened? (laughs) That's funnier than that. What a great 
hilarious joke this has been <laughs> on all of us. Yeah, but the punchline is going to last four, if not eight years. We're in trouble. Now, you wrote a book. You weren't, I, I didn't guess. say it ends well. <laughs> now, it's almost a quasi-autobiography. You wrote, you're lucky, you're funny. Where did it come from? My wife says that to me whenever I'm in trouble. So I hear that a lot. And the lesson, uh, it's safer? Well, you can get out of trouble if you're funny? I, I seem to have survived because, and maybe only because of that. And it started back when I was a kid. You know, I mentioned that watching TV was safer than going outside because I was a shrimpy little nothing and I would get picked on and even, you know, punched. And this is a cliche, but I developed a sense of humor to avoid that. And of course, when as, as we get into adolescence, oh, maybe a girl will talk to me if I can make her laugh. This is so cliche, it's embarrassing to admit. But, but that's really what it was. Well, let's get into the heart of our discussion today. Okay. There are two massive questions in life I'm going to put on the table. I'll let you pick one. Yeah. What is the meaning in life? Meaning of life. And yes. what's funny? Pick one. I think it's easier to describe the meaning of life. Now, right. right? That, uh, you said funny dying is, is easy. Yeah. Funny is hard. Funny is hard. You can, though, and I want to tell anyone listening to this, I have actually a way to make you funnier. I think it's an improv class. Really? I, it's that specific. Why? It was the best class I ever took. And I took a lot of classes. I went to college for theater. I went to Hofstra University. And I learned every aspect of acting, writing, directing, even producing, where you produce plays. And this served me well in my role as showrunner. Uh, I didn't realize it would when mm -hmm. I was, you know, 17, 18 years old. I didn't realize that 20 years later I would get to do this as for a living. I thought I would be an actor. But, you know, life has a way of Letting you know you're you. terrible on stage. Well, uh, it wasn't that I was so terrible. Thank you, though, Michael. I, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I couldn't stomach the life. Oh, I by the way, I was on stage. I was terrible. <laughs> that, that's how I know. Well, you're making up for it now. You're fantastic. No. So I took all these things, and I was an actor in New York, and, I, and it was brutal. You know, the rejection is just brutal. You can't even get without an agent. You can't even get an audition and without an agent. So how are you going to get an agent if you can't? Uh, it's insane. So we wrote a show for ourselves to be in, and that was my transition into writing. I tell you this to tell you that with all the education that I had, taking a class at the Groundlings or at UCB, it makes you attuned to the rhythms of comedy and to the spontaneity of thought that occurs when you're presented with information. It trains the brain, just like meditation would train the brain, into thinking that way. Now, if you're naturally unfunny, this will not make you funny, but it will make you funnier. Right. You bring up an interesting point. There's a difference between writing yeah. something that's going to be read yes. and making it funny, yes. as opposed to writing something that's going to be said out loud of course. so it sounds funny. Exactly. They're, they're hugely different. Yeah, I guess. When I wrote my book, I spoke to a person. Mm -hmm. I did that for a very good reason. I don't like writing. <laughs> and for me, it's, you know, my whole adolescence, I, I tried to avoid homework. And so it was ironic that my job became homework, writing scripts and writing a book, right? That was, it was... Agony it's sometimes. It's, it's lonely is what it is. Oh. So I like to talk to a person. And so I would talk to a person. They didn't do any of the quote unquote writing, but they were my ears and we recorded it. And then I was sent, this is a good way to write a book, I think, if you're someone like me. 
I got a transcript of what I said. And then I noodled with it and made it, you know, a little more readable. So it made sense and I could fix it. But the talking was the first draft. Right. You and I are writing right now without realizing it. We're improvising right now without realizing it. Yes, you have a set of questions, but you're listening to me and you're going to react to what I say next, right? And all our lives are improvisations. It actually, improv class actually makes you better at life. It makes you a better conversationalist. It makes you a better listener. You have to listen. So that's, to me, that's key. But if you take a piece like the classic Who's on First yeah. by uh, Abbott and Costello, yes. the wrong beat, the wrong pause, the yes. wrong inflection, and right. it sits there. You're right. And that's timing and that's innate. Mm-hmm. And But yet, you can bet your butt that they practiced that routine within an inch of its life. Right. Well, speaking of practice and can you kill a joke, I have a really interesting example. By the way, I'm going to spring some stuff on you. I brought along some of my favorite, I think, most interesting political jokes. Great. On paper, I think this is the best joke of 2016. Oh, I want to hear it. But listen to it, and it's not delivered particularly well. Little background. This is the Al Smith dinner in New York City, 2016. Yeah. Candidate Donald Trump. And if you remember just a few months before at the Republican National Convention, his wife gave a speech where she originally got very nice reviews, but then it was it came out that she plagiarized several paragraphs from Michelle Obama's speech in 2008. Yeah. Let's hear the joke. But I really have to say the media is even more biased this year than ever before, ever. You want the proof? Michelle Obama gives a speech, and everyone loves it. It's fantastic. They think she's absolutely great. My wife, Melania, gives the exact same speech. And people get on her case. And I don't get it. I don't know why. And it wasn't her fault. Stand up, Melania. Come on. Now, what kills me is I think on paper that is a spectacular joke. But as I listen to it, he overdoes the punchline. He adds several words extraneous, explains the joke afterward. Right. There's a bigger problem with it. What's that? He's horrible. (laughs) He's a horrible man. Well, if you want to get to the fundamentals. you, You can't. Character is so important. Right? Look yep. where it's coming from. And look at what's behind that joke. He's getting a laugh at his wife's expense, literally. She's being ridiculed for stealing. And he's saying, that's right. She stole it. Mm. Let's make fun of it. Stand up, Melania. Let him laugh at you, is really what he's saying. He's a horrible person. So is there anything we can do to make him funny besides vote for someone else? No. Character enters into everything. It is the context from which the joke is coming. If you have a sweet disposition, if your humor is coming from a place of love and not look at me how great I am, which is all he's about, then you can laugh. I'm not saying he's never been funny. I actually saw him on stage a long time ago before he was not a threat to humanity. So the stakes were much lower, and you could laugh at this kind of buffoonish guy. He actually dressed up. What was it for? I don't remember. He dressed up in overalls, and I think he was with Megan Mullally at something, and they did the theme to Green Acres. 
Well, that's a nice and idea. And it was kind of funny that he's this rich guy and Concept he's putting on good. overalls yeah. and he's doing them. But this is, a, you know, 20 years yeah. ago I saw this. And I thought, oh, he's got a sense of humor about himself. That's gone now. Right. So right. you can't laugh because of the character. Mm-hmm. One of the things, though, if I had to give someone advice yeah. on how to tell a joke, I always caution them, don't push the punchline. You push the setup. It's the great example is Henny Youngman. Yes. What's funnier? Take my wife, please. Yeah. Or take my wife, please. Take my wife, please. Yeah. Yeah. You, there, there is an emphasis. Yeah. There always has to be an emphasis, but like great acting, you do it so that it feels natural. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if we look at particularly humor in politics, let, let's just do a quick run through yeah. the years. This won't take long. Uh, the first one I'm aware of is Mark Twain. Great. Great writer. Yeah. Funny stuff. Yes. Will Rogers, who almost embodies yes. that idea you were talking about before, that that sense of, you know, I never met a man I didn't like, that sense of warmth, that kindness, a little bit of what you, a lot of what you have, a lot of what Ray Romano has. You see where it's coming from. It's coming from a place of, of warmth and love and, and caring. And so it gives you license to say almost anything because they know you're kidding. They, your audience is in on the joke. We then go a little forward, and I brought my favorite, I know this is going to sound weird, FDR joke, my favorite really? Franklin um, Roosevelt I'd, I'd joke. I'd love to hear it. I got to take it back, a little setup. Yeah. He had a little pet dog called Fala. It was a Scotty, a little Scotty. And the Republicans, of course, would be on him for everything he ever said and did. And they spread this rumor that he was at the Potsdam conference or one of the overseas conferences, and they started to take the ship back. And they say that they left Fala behind. So he turned the battleship around, taking it out of commission for several days to go get the dog and bring him back. <laughs> so Republicans made a big deal on it. Huh. Upcoming radio interview, we go to FDR. Great. These Republican leaders have not been content with attacks on me or on my wife or on my sons. No. Not content with that. They now include my little dog, Sal. <laughs> well, of course, I don't resent attacks. And my family don't resent attacks. But Fallon does resent attacks. <laughs> It's so humanizing. It's so great because you hear him with that same voice as a day that will live in infamy. But it's used (laughs) in the service of this heartwarming puppy. Yes. (laughs) It's just great. It's just great. Isn't that a great joke? And it's great to use. And I've been lucky to write for a couple of presidents. And you use the gravitas of the office to set up the joke. Yep. And we are going to go into that a little later when yeah. we talk about your classic 2000 film with President Clinton. But I got a couple more years to hit in the sure. meantime. I found the next big left turn in political humor, late 50s, early 60s with Mort Saul. Yes, And of Mort course. Saul walked on stage with a newspaper. That's right. And then riffed. Right. Were you a Saul fan? Yes, I was too young to understand what the hell he was talking about, but it came later. And then, of course, because it came later, it wouldn't have been as funny to me because it was dated material. Right. 
The next big step I think we hit is Johnny Carson, who used to bring political every, night. every now s- that I am, single night. I am old enough to have really been influenced by him and all his guests and the type of show it was and the seemingly improvisational style of mm-hmm. interviews and entertainment. There was also – that show was an hour and a half. Yeah. I think kids don't realize what that must have been like. But it was in a world without a lot of choices, no internet. And you were happy to be in the presence of Johnny and his guests as if you were at a party every night. Yeah. And to stay up and let that luxuriate, that amount of time given to the guests. No rush, no no need to break for commercial every two minutes, Mm -hmm. right? So a conversation could take place and an entertainment could take place. Something could build over the course of an evening in a natural way. And so you got to know these characters as friends and people. And context is so important yes. for humor because the same joke by two different people can have two different impacts depending on who it is. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. That President Obama could make a joke that President Trump could never make. Yeah. As we overlap those Carson years, Ronald Reagan, and there was a recent piece done on CBS, I don't know if you saw it, Yeah, that they have the contents of Reagan's desk right. when he left the White House. And in it was a small box. And in it were something like 100 three-by-five cards. Right. And on each of those three-by-five cards were something like 21 liners. He just collected them over the years and would sprinkle them into speeches. Really? Yeah, and I brought one. Great. I want to hear it. Someone has once said that actually as long as there are final exams, there will be prayer in schools. Great. It's like the classic one-liner, yes, isn't and it? He had, his, he had this wonderful, warm delivery. And don't forget, an actor. Yeah, it does help for the years yeah. and years on, what was it, GE Theater, yeah. where he was the host, and yeah. before that, everything else? But he had this wonderful, calming voice that, you know, to many people seemed warm. Yeah. Maybe some of his policies weren't as warm as, as his voice, but, yeah. you know... It served him well when he was speaking. Yeah, and comedy can put some softer edges on on rough edges in some cases. Then we hit SNL, Saturday Night Live, and boy, do you see changes there. And we then escalated to, of course, Comedy Central, the evening shows, Trevor Noah, the late night shows, Colbert, and... uh, The genius. Yeah. The genius, Stephen Colbert. Now, everything everything has changed, it seems to me. What happened? Why? Uh... I'm going to say the availability of information instantaneously. Yeah. That's part of it. Something new to write about every night. Every night, every second. You can't even keep up. Comedians now are tearing up their monologues right before they go on because something crazy just happened. And they have to address it because the whole world is watching right now. Mm -hmm. Do you know that I think Seth Meyers will release his Closer Look segments on the internet right after he tapes them early in the evening because they're going to be dated by 12.30 a.m. Shelf life is short now, Exactly right. So he gets it out there, and it served him very well. He's doing some of the best comedy available. So if Apollo's on stage, he or she has got to be talking about what happened last night, not last month. Well, the audience is literally on their phones getting updates. Mm -hmm. So you've got to keep up. Every once in a while, though, reality does sort of slip away. As you know, 99% of what we do is planned, it's written, it's gone through. But every once in a while, something happens. And I'm going to take you to Barack Obama's last State of the Union address. Mm-hmm. 
Now, several years before that, we once had a little kerfuffle Mm -hmm. when a congressman by the name of, I think it was Joseph Wilson from South Carolina made a snarky little comment during the president's State of the Union. Disgusting. Ever since then, though, we would prep a comeback. Yeah. Just in case something happened. So you had something. Yeah, just in case you had a heckler. That's right. We had something. Well, something did happen. This was not what we had prepped, though. Yeah. I have no more campaigns to run. My only agenda. (laughs) I know because I won both of them. Um, That's right. Not bad. This new guy can't do that. (laughs) Or he would do it. He would nuke them instead. There's the. Anytime you hear him, you're happy and sad at the same time. There's there's a warmth, a decency, an intelligence, an articulation that's just gone. Yeah. It was sad, the last speech or two that I worked with him, because, you know, you know next right. time I'll see you being in a whole different context. Yeah, but now, he's still who he is. He's oh, yeah. still doing great work. I love the what he's planning with his library as being a working community center for yep. people. That's a genius idea and a beautiful idea. You know, he walks the walk. You know, today we're talking about what's funny, but maybe we should also talk a little bit about what's not funny. Now, when you need to get something out to a friend or a place of business and you need to get it out now and you need to get it out fast, but you don't know where to turn, well, that's not funny. That's why there's FedEx and they've been around and they've been doing this stuff for 45 years. FedEx has thousands of locations across the United States and even in a lot of locations, they'll come pick it up. Now, as it's on its way, if you don't know where it is and you're panicked, well, that's not funny. That's why FedEx has a program where online you can track exactly where your package is at exactly what time. And if you don't know when it got there and who it got to, well, that's not funny. That's why FedEx can tell you exactly when it got there and exactly who picked it up and who signed for it. And if you don't know how much it costs, that's really not funny. That's why you'll know exactly how much it costs ahead of time with FedEx. So when it's your stuff, and it's not funny, it's serious stuff, and you need to make sure it gets there, and you want it to be affordable, and you want it to be fast, that's why you need FedEx. They're affordable, they're fast, and they're not funny at all. Now, you started to write jokes along the way, particularly for President Clinton. Yeah. How were you approached? Who called you? Who was yes. your conduit? Because there are always many routes into That's that right. White House a writing room. That's How did right. it start? I was working on Raymond at the time, and a guy I went to high school with named Mark Katz <laughs> was already there punching up speeches. Yep. There's a humor season in Washington. It starts with that Smith dinner, the gridiron dinner, and the, yep. the radio and TV correspondence yep. dinner, and then the big one, the White House correspondence dinner. And so they need jokes. And so Mark said, would you like to help? Of course I'd like to help. That would an honor. And I'm telling you, the first time you hear your joke uttered by the president of the United States, there's no bigger high than that. There really isn't. You write something. It's almost that scene from broadcast news where Albert Brooks does, I say it into the phone here. It comes out there. Yeah, but out of the mouth of the president of the United States, which is a little bit of an extra bit. They once uh, called me because he was having difficulty with a line. 
I think it was based on the fact that an MTV correspondent had asked him if he wore boxers right. or briefs, and the, the joke was something uh, addressing that. Yeah. In the in the one of the White House correspondents' jokes, he didn't know how to deliver that line, Uh-oh. and so they asked me. I, they sent me the joke. Yep. I didn't write this joke, but they asked me what advice I would give on the delivery. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you talk about the underwear as if you're reading off the names of the war dead. Mm-hmm. You give it that gravitas. Right. And he nailed it. Yeah, I He once... was great, by the way, at doing this. He was, he's like the greatest speaker of our time. Well, he, he learns. I'm going to share yeah. a secret with you that I've rarely told anyone yeah. else. And it was the same situation. Yeah. This was his first comic speech. Yeah. And I remember Eric Tarloff was there. Eric was married to Laura Tyson, who was in the White House. He's a comedy writer. He wrote a great book, FaceTime, sort of about this. And I'm actually a fictional character in the book. Because it happened like this. We're going through the speech, and it's really good material. Yes. And he's kind of flat. He's kind of just not hitting it. Yeah. So there was a joke in there that I really liked. Yeah. And he did it flat. Yeah. And I guess... I snorted or did a face, a snarky face. And he huh. looked at me and goes, what's wrong? Yeah. And all sensitivity left my head. Yes. And I said, well, you just f***ed up the best joke in the whole speech. Wow. Silence in the room. And you're still alive. It, I'm, I was looking at the door to see if the Secret Service was right. about to run in. So there's this intake of breath, yeah. including mine. Yeah. And he looks at me and goes, well, how do you do it? So we went over it once or twice. It was better. And then everyone exhaled. That was also my last F-bomb in the White House. I just want to make that clear for the record. But you're, I mean, that's, you You worked with him. Yeah. You were there every day. So it wasn't like you were a stranger coming in. And when I directed that White House Correspondents Dinner yep. video, I was a stranger coming in. And I kind of had a similar experience but it was a little worse. Yeah. I got to write jokes for him for all eight years. Yes, yes, you did. I had always suggested doing a video for the dinner to show on the screen. They said, you can't do it. He's the president. He doesn't have time to make a funny video, okay? Except the last year, the year 2000, he had some time. And so I got to not only co-write it with the White House guys, but I got to go to the White House the week of the dinner and direct the President of the United States in a comic video. We're doing a bit. I think he has to say the word Yahtzee at, at, <laughs> I remember the line. at his desk in the Oval Office. Now, there's about 30 people. Were you there? I think I was, yes. 30 people are around watching this kind of fun event, which is the president is doing a comedic video. This, you know, we take it for granted now because Obama did Between Two Verns, but this had never been done before. That's absolutely the first. My favorite scene was when you had him sitting outside the dryer waiting for his clothes to dry. Yes, so we'll talk about that in a second. He was wonderful, by the way. He usually first take, not just because he was fantastic, but 
but because he didn't really have time to do many takes right. uh, for these things. I had about grand total of an hour and a half to do this six-minute video. Uh-huh. Uh, Excuse me, Mr. President, North Korea is on the line. Exactly right. Him. He could yeah. go in any second. He could be called away, whatever. But, you know, I grabbed it. It was like guerrilla filmmaking. But here, he has to say the word Yahtzee, throw his hands up as if he won something, and that's the exclamation he's making. Yahtzee, like I did it. Okay. So action, and he says Yahtzee. Everybody's uh, kind of looking around, and I feel like, you know, I have a bit of a rapport with him after being with him for 45 minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Total. Close friends now. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm, I'm not hearing uh, it's Yahtzee. It's Yahtzee. He goes, that's what I said. <laughs> now, I'm in a room now with you guys yeah. and all these, you know, White House muckety mucks and my little crew. And when he says, that's what I said, everybody looks at their shoes. Yep. And a smart person would have let it go. I'm not that person. I say, I'm just not hearing the T. It's Yahtzee, Yahtzee. Everyone now is looking past their shoes (laughs) into the ground. And he goes, that's what I said. And I said, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but I and after we were done shooting that little bit my brother who was one of the camera guys comes over to me and he goes I can't believe that you corrected him like that in front of everybody you have the same tone of voice like uh, when you're calling me a dick right and I said I'm doing it for the country he can't mispronounce the word Yahtzee he's the president of the United States he has to say it right he goes I just can't believe that you but it's in there if you see it he doesn't say it quite right and I couldn't correct him. Right. Your friend Mark Katz yes. one, once got yelled at. The oh. only time I ever saw the he president He probably deserved yell. it. Well, no, he wrote a joke for him. He said, <laughs> and as president, yeah. I get to stop at McDonald's and I can supersize anything I want. Uh-huh. President didn't like that joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. But so, Mark was really funny. Oh, he was, and, he was and great. really great. And I owe him everything because I got to do this thing and that thing changed my life. When that thing premiered, again, it was the first time a president yeah. did an intentionally funny video right. <laughs> from the White House. Now we get them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he, I was like on the Today Show the next morning. The, they led with that. They, the, yeah. Johnny Carson called and wanted to have lunch with me. It was it was a big deal. Entree, entree. Now, two years before that, yeah, Ray Romano did. Yes. And first of all, he was hysterical, yes. obviously. You don't need me to say that. But I was interested at the choice he made to pretty much do his stand-up act and well, not do the Washington, you know, shtick. Do you remember his opening joke? Yeah. His opening l- joke. laid there about parking. That wasn't the joke I was oh, referring okay. to. The joke, even before that, the first thing he said, now you have to remember, this White House correspondence dinner that they asked Ray was during the scandal. Right. Oh, yes. So he comes out and he goes, they called me, and when they called me to be the comedian, they said, do you follow politics? And I said, not really. And they said, we'll pay you double. <laughs> That's very good joke. That's a good joke. A really good joke. You're acknowledging the situation without any kind of... Right you know, bad. And then he did pretty much his act. Didn't really tailor it. There was that parking joke about some politician parking in a place right. where he was never going to work. It's not him. Yeah. But he was then 
great, and it was, you know, avoiding the subject that was on everybody's mind. You know, those dinners are sort of undergoing a metamorphosis. When it started, they were sort of outgrowths of the alfalfa and the gridiron, where you, they always say that the jokes should singe but not burn. Mm -hmm. And then I think Stephen Colbert hit, where suddenly... Well, no, we will not just send you, but we'll give you maybe a first degree. Single, single greatest, bravest act of comedy in our lifetime. Yeah. Because here's what's hilarious to me. The Republicans thought that the character he did on the Colbert Report was a Republican. They believed that's who they were hiring. They believed the act. Hilarious. It's hilarious. He now gets to go into the lion's den and insult the lion to his face. Yeah. This is very brave to do. That act did not work. I, I urge everyone to go on YouTube and look at Stephen Colbert's George, yep, Bush George Bush dinner. You can't believe how it's bombing in the room and how hilarious it is because he's doing his character. And they are right now realizing, oh, maybe he's not a Republican. Yeah. Speaking of bombing in the room, yeah. perhaps, yeah. and being massively successful at home is, of course, this year's Michelle Wolf. Thought she was great. Thought she was great. And I'm sorry, but if you don't show up, you forfeit any right to complain about this. What amazes me about it, it's not like they didn't know what they were doing. If you see any of her stand up on HBO or, or Comedy Central, you know what you're getting, and they she was, expect her to I'm check sorry. her personality at the door. She was tame compared to what they deserve. Ah, uh, true. And the cowardice of our current leader to not even show up because he's so thin-skinned that he couldn't possibly take it. Well, speaking of that, we're going to jump the order of clips and we're going to have to go back to the radio. I think this is the White House. No, this may be radio TV. And this was when some people say Donald Trump made the decision that he was going to yep. run for the presidency. Yep. And he, here's that one of those jokes. Yeah. No, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. Well handled, sir. Well handled. Listen, this is uh, also mild compared to what that man deserved at yeah. that time with his birther nonsense. The insult of that and the... Yeah. the disgusting thoughts behind that, this is more than fair game. Of course, oh, Trump yeah. was publicly humiliated, and now we're seeing a presidency whose the only agenda is spite. Yeah. I love that little well-played at the end. That, Beautiful. That, that just little... That just little no, he, knew what he, he knows what he's doing, and he's brilliant. He almost always knows what he's doing. Okay. We did once have a difference of opinion. Yeah. It was one of the states of the union, I think it was 14, and he had a joke in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, respectfully, Mr. President, I, I just don't think it works. It's just it's a little bit erudite. It, mm-hmm. It's really a written speech mm-hmm. to be read, not yeah. why. And he said, no, it's funny. Yeah. I said, you're so anyway. He, like you said, he's the president. He's got the veto. Yeah. He wins. So this is what played that night. I've ordered every federal agency to eliminate rules that don't make sense. We've already announced over 500 reforms, and just a fraction of them will save business and citizens more than $10 billion over the next five years. We got rid of one rule from 40 years ago that could have forced some dairy farmers to spend $10,000 a year proving that they could contain a spill because milk was somehow classified as an oil. With a rule like that, I guess it was worth crying over spilled milk. Yeah, that's called a long way to go. <laughs> that's a giant setup for a, not a great payoff. But he's entitled. It's okay. Of course. But about two weeks later, I'm over at the White House again, and it's the first time I see him after the speech, and I get this look. And I know it means one of two things. Mm-hmm. It's either, well, Michael, you were right, mm-hmm. or you gave me a bad line read. I'm going to get you. <laughs> really? Well, it was one of the two. I hope it was the former. Listen, he's got a lot on this plate. I got yes. to write from afar. I, I wrote his first opening line for, I think, the Smith dinner. Which one? It was something about, it had just come out that Bush had said he's happy to come to the dinner as long as they don't talk about the economy. So Obama gets up and he says, now I know that George has said that he's open to anything as long as it's not about the economy. So tonight I'd like to start with the economy. And that got a big, yeah. you know, it's a good way to start off. Yep. You know, we know we're playing the game now. Yeah. And he uh, did it brilliantly and uh, all the jokes he did. He, he was, you know, he's young. And so he grew up in an age yeah. that's current and cool. And he could do really funny great videos and did them often because he knew this was a great way to communicate in today's world. You know, at the beginning, like you just said, one of the things that a lot of candidates ask me about is, does self-deprecating humor work? I think it's really tricky because so often it can sound defensive and Mm -hmm. shy and I really don't deserve to be here. Right. Trickier for a president. I'm trying to think of self-deprecating jokes for the president. I can show you one for a prime minister. Do it. My favorite self-deprecating joke, this is Prime Minister Tony Blair when he came to speak to the Congress right after the cessation of the Iraqi conflict. Yes. Mr. Speaker, sir, my thrill on receiving this award was only a little diminished on being told that the first congressional gold medal was awarded to George Washington for what Congress called his wise and spirited conduct in getting rid of the British out of Boston. On our way down here, Senator Frist was kind enough to show me the, the fireplace where in 1814 the British had burnt the Congress Library. I know this is kind of late, but sorry. <laughs> That's not so self-deprecating, really. It's more about his country than him. True. Right? But it is very good. Uh, now that I think of it, I think Obama could be self-deprecating in a very charming way where he let us all know that his wife runs the house at home. Yes. And that he brought up often. In fact, I got to meet, when they first were out here campaigning and I got to meet them, 
I was introduced to them and she first recognized my wife who was in Raymond and she was like, oh my God, we were just upstairs watching it, getting ready. It's my favorite show. And then she takes me aside and she points to her husband and says, he is Raymond. Ah. I loved that. How could you not? It was so great. And so, you know, they had a special place in my heart just for that. Sure. Because they watched my stupid TV show. Yeah. Bruce Babbitt once, who was the former governor of Arizona, used to use a joke that he sources true, and I think it yeah. is, that he talks about it's if he's elected, he's about to go to his inauguration. Yeah. He's now the governor, and he's in the shower, and one of his little sons knocks on the door of the shower yeah. and says, Dad, Time Magazine is on the phone. Yeah. So he goes, oh, I've made it. I'm a national political figure. So he grabs the towel, wraps around, gets on the phone. The voice says, how would you like 52 weeks for only the cost of 26? <laughs> Great joke. Yeah. Great joke. I used yep. to use that all the time. It's so important. You know, this is how we connect yeah. to each other. I, I believe that, you know, food is... The great connector yes. that we all have to eat and we, we socialize over food and we, we bond over food. But beyond that, I think that laughs are the cement mm-hmm. and that, that if you and I have lunch and it's perfectly pleasant, that may go well. I may never see you again. But if we laugh together, mm. and now we're friends. Yeah. And when a president can bond to his constituency, every politician can, every human being can, by getting that laugh Yeah. You know, that place where bonding can occur can be a really tricky one, and that's on the talk shows. Right. And a lot of times, both candidates and office holders have to go on the evening shows. And that's tricky. By the way, this isn't anything new. Bobby Kennedy was on with Jack Parr. Yeah. Back then, though, it was a little more, it was almost like a very mild version of Meet the Press, but yeah. it was very polite. But then after Bill Clinton goes on Arsenio and plays the saxophone, yeah. it kind of changes. And if you had to give guidance yeah. to a candidate uh-huh. who's going on one of these shows, because yeah. you've been on them, you've been on the lot, and you're a fabulous guest. Thank you. What's the secret of being a fabulous guest? I don't know. You have to have a certain amount of energy, I guess, and a, and a certain readiness to play along with what the host is going to throw at you. Mm-hmm. Usually there, there's been a pre-interview, so you're not a stranger yeah. to every subject. But, you you know, I think the, the best guests have a certain spontaneity. Yeah. Now, for a president to go on these shows, you know, Obama was great on his feet. Yeah. This is something that our current president could never, ever do. You know, we would watch it for the horrible faux pas that would come out of his head, mm-hmm. Right. But not, you know, we're not looking for a witty bon mot to to come out there. It's not going to happen. But you got to hold your own. You got to be a good guest. You know, I once had a really strange incident. I got on the Acela train one night. I was heading up to New York. And at the other end of the train, I saw someone that I had worked with before on several occasions, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Mm -hmm. And he was doing a book tour. This was after he was out of office. He was on, I guess, Stephanopoulos' show that morning. Mm -hmm. And he's training up to New York. So I go over and we're catching up on stuff. I hadn't seen him since the debates. And I said, everything good? And he said, well, I'm very worried. Mm-hmm. And I said, why? He said, I'm going on what I think is going to be a very a difficult show tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. He said, what are you going on? He said, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Mm. I said, well, 
usually it's kind of funny, sir. Why? He had only seen one episode of it. Mm-hmm. His staff got him the episode when he interviewed President Obama and they got into a little bit of a mm-hmm. – it was a serious interview that yeah. night. And that's what he thought he was in store for. Yes. So we had to sort of revise the beginning of what he was going to do. Yes. So we told a John Oliver joke. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd be glad to, to uh, deport him if you like. I have uh, friends back there. Great. So Coming a little back into the right track. One last thing I wanted to ask you about when it comes to comedy, impressions. Yeah. Impressions become an increasingly big thing about our, our office holders yeah. and sometimes by office holders. Right. Do impressions still work? I mean, obviously, we have them on SNL with uh, what they do with this administration. But overall, do impressions work? Always. If they're good. I mean, yeah. they can really capture the zeitgeist, you know. Mm-hmm. You know the guys that did Obama, it's a tough yeah. impression. And to do him well, you know, you got attention. You know, it's funny. They either try to do pretty much a replica and make right. it funny, like Dan Aykroyd, his Jimmy Carter right. was dead on. Was his. Great. I mean, he really got the essence yeah. of the person. The others are kind of – so if you go to uh, Alec Baldwin, they're more yeah. of a caricature. They're both valid. They're both funny, but they're different. Do you think – I do. I think that also you're, when we look at the context, you're dealing now with a cartoonish figure. Mm-hmm. And so exaggeration is, is necessary. There's even a show where he's literally a cartoon mm-hmm. on right now. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. Colbert doesn't really capture him. Just He has a, a cadence that might be right and a, and a silliness. And we love seeing it because it's an exaggeration, and Alec Baldwin is probably the most exaggerated. Yeah. But there's still a truth in it. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't laugh. I got to tell you who the greatest impressionist I ever saw. Okay. Tim Russert. Tell you a story. Okay. You remember Tim Russert? He I was do. the host of. He was great. Meet. He worked his way up through politics. He worked a long time for Mario Cuomo, and then he worked for Daniel Patrick Moynihan, right. who was a large yes. personality. Yes. And as you know, Senator Moynihan would sometimes stay out a little late, get up a little late. Well, Tim did a dead-on impression, perfect, yeah. and could also talk policy, right? Because he wrote right. half the right. policy. So there is a rumor, yeah, never totally substantiated, that every once in a while, if the senator was coming in late for work and there was a phone interview scheduled, he did it. That's awesome. Yep. Yep. That's great. I think he did a better Moynihan than Moynihan did. <laughs> Speaking of, I do want to end our conversation with what you're up to now Thanks. and the experience you're you're having with your show on Netflix. Yes. I never thought of it as a political show, but in today's climate, just the embracing of other people and other cultures is somehow I'm a liberal now. I just thought I was a person. Yeah, but when you go overseas, do people look at you? Because you do do a lot of your segments overseas. Yes. Do they accuse you of being an ugly American? No, and I think it's everyone's responsibility within the sound of my voice to go travel because you represent us. Yeah. And we need that representation from the people. And I'll say this. I generally find around the world that the people are so much better than their governments. <laughs> And so I love meeting them. It's yeah. reassuring in, in today's world to meet regular human beings. And I think travel, I think that the world would be a little better if we all could experience 
just some of someone else's experience. Yeah. And beyond that, it's the best thing you can do for yourself. You come back enriched. You come back with a different view of life that you can carry with you in your everyday life. Yeah. And beyond that, you make the world better just by you going and being nice, a little respectful of where you are. Mm -hmm. Just that, that's what's missing. So you, everyone, be nice and go. It's the best thing you can do for yourself, and I'm saying it's the best thing you can do for everybody else. There's something else I know you're doing, which is a podcast of your own, just like mine, except a lot better. Yes, I'm looking to put you out of business, Michael. <laughs> you're off to a good start. <laughs> it is called What and What Will I Hear on It? Naked Lunch. David Wilde uh, and I host a lunch where we talk to guests. That's it. Our guests include people from the world of entertainment, from movies, from TV that I've met over my 30-year career. David Wilde has had a similar career. He wrote for Rolling Stone, so he knows a lot of people in music and TV as well. And so we eat lunch and talk to the people. And where will I be able to find it? I know it's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm not going to tell you where to get your podcasts. Usually at this point in the program, as we end, we vote somebody off the media island, someone that will never appear on this show, and we would probably prefer not to be on any show. So in that spirit of love, I'm going to pick Congressman Adam Schiff, but not to vote off the island, just a brief suspension. You know, he's working tirelessly so on every cable show to keep us up to speed on what's going on, but I'm afraid he's getting a little overloaded, a little tired, and... I'd like him to have the chance to spend a little more time with his wife. So let's simply suspend him for two weeks. You know, have a little quiet dinner or two at home, get some sleep, and then we'll be glad to welcome him back on the media island. I don't even care if he spends time with his wife. He's got an important job to do. <laughs> do that. Touche. We have been talking politics as unusual, and there's no better unusual guest I could have than my <laughs> friend Phil Rosenthal. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Politics as Unusual. And a big thanks to my guest today, Phil Rosenthal. Today's episode of Politics as Unusual has been brought to you by FedEx. They're affordable, they're fast, and they make this program possible. Now, next week on Politics as Unusual, for all of you who are stuck in a blue or red state, where you and your party hasn't won an election in a dog's age, we need to help you. So I'll be asking, how do you turn a losing candidate into a winning one? And we'll ask it of legendary basketball coach P.J. Carlesimo. You need to say the old coach's cliche that they've heard a million times, but you need to say, hey, we're not going to catch up all at one time. Like when we go out there, that's our goal. Uh, you've got to reduce it to a smaller portion, a manageable portion that they can take advantage of. It's all here on Politics as Unusual.